This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I, if you want to learn more about the Institute. He's also a writer over at Sportico. Welcome back to the show. AJ, thanks for having me back. So this whole week, when all over the news, there's been tons of reporting around the Students for Fair Admission case that is currently having hearings in front of the Supreme Court. And, oh boy, it's heated, and people on both sides have opinions, and it's it's full of gray areas. But you recently, your article you wrote on November 1st actually said that they're citing squash and crew amid skepticism of race quotas, which was uh, intriguing. Go Dive into that. Yeah, so Justice Gorsuch in particular found it curious, I guess you could say, that Harvard's admissions policy defines its diversity goals very broadly, that when you think of diversity, you might think of race, which Harvard clearly does, but Harvard has also, at least as Justice Gorsuch has put it, argued that it, it should have protection for other elements of diversity, including children of alumni, children of faculty, groups that are not necessarily traditionally thought of as uh you know in need of protection right uh children of large donors and uh, justice gorsuch talked about some of the sports that harvard has which are predominantly sports that are not considered diverse um squash fencing crew these are sports that tend to draw from affluent areas that uh, are predominantly white. And the the argument is that Harvard has defined diversity so broadly that it, it ought not to have protection. Now, Harvard has said some of the suggestions on how it could change its metrics would lead to fewer African-American students attending. That although it's true, maybe there'd be fewer children of alumni and children of faculty, there'd be these other corresponding effects. But Justice Gorsuch said, essentially, you know, this this doesn't deserve protection if it's discriminating. And uh, the argument is that it discriminates against this, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act and uh, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. So it's an interesting case where Harvard's admissions policy, because it, because it sort of quantifies everything, it makes it vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. Because it creates a point system and why are points going to children of alumni uh, yeah. who are not necessarily a diverse group, right? So it it's an interesting case about what does diversity mean? Yeah, quote directly from your article, Cameron Norris, who argued for Students for Fair Admission, said not at all, adding that Harvard is not diverse at all besides its racial statistics. Norris claimed that 9% of incoming freshmen at Harvard are conservative and that 82% are wealthy. And there's 23 rich students for every one low-income student on campus, according to Norris, which is uh, quite quite the needle into uh, Harvard's case. Yeah, and I think this has been the struggle for Harvard, at least before this court. Now, they've had success to date that the court has said that there's a there's an interest under Supreme Court precedent in recognizing race in the admission in an admissions policy. But the Supreme Court really honed in on saying Harvard has defined diversity in such a way 
that it's that race is only one component that it also includes you know again the children of alumni it just it's not a good optic for harvard in arguing that its admissions policy ought to withstand scrutiny now we'll see what happens we don't know what the supreme court's going to do uh, we know that if the court if the justices dwell on the uh, issue of race and precedent perhaps harvard will win if the court which it seemed to be heading towards focus more on this policy has multiple levels of unfairness and doesn't and doesn't lead to a diverse class uh it's more more vulnerable to being rebuked and uh, i don't i don't know if you're terribly familiar with this aspect of it also but there's a previous case that said that this affirmative action generally speaking is a something that will eventually be phased out in front of a previous supreme court case and that was brought up again in this case 20 years later or whatever it may be, which makes it hard to really have that be relevant, I'd imagine. Yeah, so that was the Grutter case, and and Justice O'Connor in it wrote that in 25, now she didn't say 25 years, like this is the hard and fast 25 years, but she wrote in that she wrote basically saying we can't discriminate on the basis of race forever, mm-hmm. that it's not an appropriate, at least in her view, appropriate way of looking at admissions and she said, in 25 years, this shouldn't be necessary. Well, that was in 2003. We're now in 2022. We're going to be 2023 shortly. So say 20 years later, uh, the we're not at 25 years yet. So maybe the court will say, well, let's, you know, let's wait five years. But I think it is, a, it is an important point that although race can be considered in admissions, it's not something that the court has said is a permanent fixture that there has to be some end to that. Uh, otherwise, it will lead to uh, preferential admissions. So it's an interest, It's a really interesting set of issues about sort of what is allowed. And, and I think Harvard's policy of bringing, of the scoring system that includes things that don't seem, when we think of diversity, we don't think of children of donors, right? Like that's not, we, we, most people are going to find that problematic because most people don't have parents that can donate, you know, millions of dollars. So it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like a protectable interest. At least that's how the, some of the justices were looking at it. If the Supreme Court ends up siding with students for fair admission, what are your predictions in the sports uh, sports field when it comes to other aspects of college or high school for that matter, I'd imagine? Yeah, so I think admissions policies across the country are going to have to look at to what extent is race considered in athletic decisions. And in Harvard's case, the fact that some of these sports seem to be predominantly white, is that problematic? Maybe. Uh, in other sports, it's different. So I think admissions policies would have to clearly disaggregate race from any sort of decision about an incoming athlete. And we know that sports have different demographics. You know, hockey, is hockey, for instance, which is a big sport at our university, is predominantly white, uh, predominantly draws from northern groups uh, in Canada, uh, you know, things like that would have to look at to what extent is race coming up in those decisions. And if it is, uh, schools are going to have to change those policies. 
And from a financial aid perspective and everything, there's going to be a lot more probably putting a magnifying glass as to what colleges are doing. So like, we're full disclosure. This this is a school we're actively aware when we're posting uh, various aspects of diversity related scholarships and such. It's because you could run afoul of state law, let alone this precedent that may come. Well, and, and our and New Hampshire state law is of course right. different on this than federal law, so it does present issues and that go beyond admissions, you know, go to hiring and things like that. So uh, it's going to sort of look at how race is used as a factor in, in decision-making and beyond that other factors, I think, you know, legacy uh, parents, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which uh, the process uh, is affected by factors that, that maybe we don't always think through fully the implications of. So moving on to the next article titled NCAA Athletes Score Another Chance to Debate the Slavery Loophole. We previously discussed this because of some uh, interesting comparisons around sex work and uh, salon workers and, and such. Uh, what's the latest when it comes to this case? Yeah, so this is a, this is a really interesting case. Uh, the case uh, involves college athletes who are arguing that they are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act, as opposed to the National Labor Relations Act. Now, there's a there's an important distinction. Fair Labor Standards Act is how we employ work study students. Mm-hmm. So they're getting basically minimum wage. They're not able to unionize. It's part time work. They don't get health care. I mean, they're all. It's a much more limited version of employment than what has been brought up. And the players have argued, why is it that when they go play in a college game, they don't get paid? But the work-study students who are selling tickets, who are selling hot dogs, who are at security, who are doing IT stuff, wh- whatever it may be, scoreboard, they're getting paid. And it, it actually has a, a lot of traction, that argument, because it, it doesn't seem right, right? Why are, the, why are the players not paid when the other people working at games are? Now, it doesn't mean the law is going to cut that way. But uh, in this case, it's now before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and the most recent development is that the Third Circuit has said, look, we need more briefing on this, which doesn't seem necessarily like the biggest piece of news, but it also shows they're thinking about this. Yeah, it's not just immediately getting dumped out. Like, they're, they're right. like, there's something weird. This is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States, NCAA, especially Division One. I. I mean, this is something that should needs to be looked at very closely and carefully. Yeah, and it it's I remember in Ed, obviously, you know, I've worked with Ed O'Bannon, so uh, he's a friend of mine, but in Ed O'Bannon's case, there was a similar sort of narrative that someone who's not a lawyer will find persuasive. In Ed O'Bannon's case, it was, why are all these players in video games and they're not being paid, right? Like it's, it, you know, you don't need to be a lawyer to, to think that doesn't sound right. There's something wrong there. So I think this case, the Johnson case has a similar appeal where it's hard to say, well, if you're selling tickets and hot dogs, you get paid. But if you're out there getting tackled, you don't, right? Risking brain damage. Risking brain damage. Now, schools are going to say, and they have said, well, you know, if we pay them, we're going to cut all these sports, right? Because it's going to increase labor costs. That might be true, although maybe they'll pay coaches less. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which distributional effects can play out. But it is an interesting case that has a commonsensical appeal. It's not like the other 
legal matters involving college athletes trying to become employees where they're arguing they really ought to be full-time employees with healthcare, union rights. This is a much more modest incremental approach, but still is threatening to schools. Yeah. And there's a comparison that can be drawn to how with prison workers, correct? Right. So under, under the law, uh, essentially there's a, obviously slavery and involuntary servitude are outlawed. They're illegal, but there's an exception for prison workers. And there's case law where prison workers have said, well, we're working, so we should be considered employees. And the court said, well, there's no, there's a loophole where because you are, you've committed a crime and you're incarcerated, you don't get paid. Now the, the, the lawyers in the Johnson case are saying, well, wait a second. Uh, The NCAA has referenced this. It doesn't seem right that college athletes should be viewed in the same light as uh, you know prisoners, right? It's just sort of a Don't sort of a bad look, right? Bad, bad look for the NCAA. <laughs> yeah. Now the NCAA has argued, well, that's not really what we refer to it as, and also other workers, you know, dog walkers, salon workers. This this precedent is relevant in denying employee recognition, but. It, optically, it's not a good case for the NCAA if they're re, if they're using prisoner precedent, uh, and also again the, the the idea that why are some student workers paid but others aren't? So, kind of related to that, but it, once again, the NCAA, there's been uh, more developments in how name, image, and likeness is uh, is, is related to it with limits and antitrust claims. Uh, what's that about? Right. So the NCAA has issued another set of clarifications about its interim NIL policy. So once states legalized NIL, and really when I say that, it's they made it, we, we are, everyone has a right of publicity, including college athletes. What those state laws did was made it illegal for the NCAA and colleges to suppress that right, which they had been for many years. So the NCAA essentially capitulated and allowed name, image, and likeness. And since then, it's been described as the Wild West, that there's no really restraint, that some college athletes appear to be paid much more for NIL than what they ought to be, and that it seems as if the payment maybe is more a recruiting inducement, which remains prohibited by NCAA rules. So the NCAA issued a set of clarifications about what colleges can do and what they can't do. It... it, whether it's enforced, I think remains to be seen. No school has gotten in trouble yet with NIL. And I've talked to all sorts of people in college sports and they say, unless the NCAA does something, these are sort of aspirational goals. It doesn't seem like anyone gets in trouble with name, image, and likeness. So there's that issue. And then secondly, the NCAA actually starts enforcing restrictions on what athletes can make in name, image, and likeness. That's an antitrust risk because it looks like the NCAA and its members are restraining what students can earn. So some of these clarifications may end up not meaning a whole lot. Now they, there are issues about what schools can provide in terms of education, in terms of even what appears to be clinic work. There are some law schools that are looking into and have even begun name, image, and likeness clinics. So the NCAA's new clarifications could be read to potentially make that not allowed for the university. I'm skeptical the NCAA would take that view. Yeah, it it's this 
it started off with the states actually starting to make decisions on it and then it's expanded so much becomes so well known especially through the ghetto banning case and such um i mean do you feel like from a legal perspective is it going in a direction it seems like it's very just crazy right now well i i think a lot of college i think it will continue to the market will grow now for most college athletes, they're not making a lot of name, image, right. and like. I mean, this is, and they I mean, never this, will be able to. It, and they never will be able to because a lot of them are not that marketable. I mean, right. this is the reality of it. There are not. There's a small percentage of college athletes that, by themselves, are very marketable. It's really small. Now, some of them are marketable in part because they play for a team. You know, an offensive lineman for Alabama maybe by himself is not that uh, noteworthy. Maybe isn't recognizable, but because he's on that team. He has some uh, acclaim. So there are some college athletes that are able to do well with name image likeness, but by, by and large, it's the, the returns are not that big. But on the other hand, that's okay. You know, name image, if somebody makes, if you're a college student, any money is good, right? Yeah. And even free stuff, you know, someone said, well, you know, some are getting free pizzas. I don't know. Hey, I'm way, I'm way past college. Free pizzas sound pretty good to me, right? If somebody said, here's a, you know, free beats to Domino's for the next two months, I'd be pretty happy. So it's not about necessarily making somebody rich. It's really just about recognizing that they have some recognizability and ensuring it. So what's going to happen? I, I think the NCAA is going to tread pretty carefully before they try to restrict this. Using your Magic 8 ball, looking ahead several years down the line, I mean, do you think it's going to take some sort of landmark decision by the Supreme Court to, like, have some general feel of how this is going to work or is it going to be a splintering of decisions across the states is kind of this confusing state of federalism and the ncaa being all over the place yeah it's probably the latter but here's the thing for the ncaa if the ncaa in one federal circuit has to do a certain thing has to allow college athletes to be flsa employees i don't see how they cannot allow that everywhere mm-hmm. right so the ncaa is in a position where it's sort of a, a race. They might say it's a race to the bottom, right? That whatever jurisdiction makes it most hospitable to college athletes in terms of their economic rights, the NCAA can't have different sets of rules in one part of the country than another because it clearly would have effect on recruiting, right? It would disadv- It would no longer be a national entity. So my guess is that I don't know if the Supreme Court is going to weigh in on this. It may not take that. Mm-hmm. It may take one federal circuit reaching an opinion that the NCAA uh, has to abide by. And unless the NC- maybe the Supreme Court will send them a lifeline, but the reality is the Supreme Court voted 9-0 against them. So I, I don't know if they're that, you know, has, this is, a, think of a 9-0 with this court, you have very conservative, very liberal, and they all went against the NCAA. So I'm not sure the, the Supreme Court's there to help the NCAA. And I think the NCAA, if it were smart, it would, it would be proactive. It would make changes. I mean, with the Ed O'Bannon case could have been avoided if they just allowed name image like it. It was totally avoidable. And they go to court and they lose. In the Austin case, avoidable. They go to court and they lose. So their strategy of, of trying to play defense in court has been an has been an abject failure, at least in the last decade. And unless the NCAA really changes that mentality and either no longer litigates. Or what I would think is the best move, get ahead of it. Change rules before they're changed by someone who isn't you and they're changed in a way that you don't like. 
Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law and Student Writer at Sportico. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast. <laughs>